You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his father and mother, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am Yahweh your God. Do not turn to idols, or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am Yahweh your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to Yahweh, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to Yahweh, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, I am Yahweh your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to Yahweh to the entrance of the tent of meeting a ram for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before Yahweh for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant, 
any kind of tree for food. Then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to Yahweh. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am Yahweh your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am Yahweh. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am Yahweh your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am Yahweh. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 609 of this podcast. That was Leviticus 19, and today is May 3rd, 2023. That means a couple of things. One, it's a curious parallel that I am recording this episode talking through Leviticus 19, and I also just did the write-up for the episode where we were in the passage of Leviticus, Leviticus 5, that has to do with hearing a call for people to testify, witnesses to an alleged crime, come testify, this person is charged or accused or it's alleged that they've done this thing. Does anybody have any information? Please step up and alert the authorities, whether to convict a guilty person or to exonerate a innocent person. I just did the write-up, which you can find at thegarrettashleymulletshow.com. If anyone sins in not testifying, though he is a witness, was that episode. But in this episode, we see some of the themes in Leviticus 5 expanded on. For one, we have the emphasis 
throughout the whole chapter that God is holy. You are also called to be holy. You shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. That's what God says. I didn't say that. That's not my claim. That's God's claim. But how would it be if God says this in his word and I ignore it? Will I be innocent? If I pretend I didn't hear that, I pretend I didn't know that, if I just wave it off, will I be doing you a favor if I ignore it? No, indeed, in either case. Now, there is a phrase that we use to describe people in this day, and I'm sure it's not new, it's not original to us, but I don't know how far back it goes. So I'll just say in our day, holier than thou, even just the use of the word thou instead of you, holier than you, that maybe is a clue that this goes back to the Puritans, perhaps. Once again, I'll put in a plug for the documentary about the Puritans that you can find over at Canon Plus, which I just watched early, early, early yesterday morning, and it was quite good. But the Puritans were derided for being holier than thou, and it was not a compliment. It wasn't, you guys are actually holier than we are. It was, you Puritans think you're so righteous. You think you're so holy in paying attention to the details and the specifics and the particulars and trying to be holistic about your walk with Christ, your obedience to Christ. You think you're so holy. And can that be a valid criticism sometimes when people are acting out of selfish ambition and vain conceit? Absolutely, for sure. But can it also just be a ugly dismissive of somebody who is following after the Lord and thereby making us feel rather insecure about ourselves? Uh, also, yes. Also, yes. That's another possibility. So the goal when we come to a passage like this and verse two, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. The goal for us should not be to first and foremost, avoid the charge of being called holier than thou, because people can make that charge, make that claim, that accusation in bad faith, which actually is something talked about, generally speaking, at some length in Leviticus 19. We are told to not oppress our neighbor or rob him, which is to say that it's possible for us to do that. And if you say, I'm not going to do this or that because that would be oppressing my neighbor, somebody could say, oh, you think you're so holy. You think you're so much better than the rest of us, don't you? But they might say that and it have no bearing at all on your motives. Your motives could be actually entirely wholesome. Your motives could be, I want to have a good conscience. I want to have right standing before the Lord my God. I want to not be ashamed of myself. I want to be able to sleep at night, we might say. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, as Jesus asks rhetorically, when the answer is, of course, it doesn't profit you much to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. Not enough. It's unwise. But then we see in verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. 
but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. So there we have something of a practical application of God telling his people, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. We see one of the ways that this is going to express itself is in our justice, our administration of judgment with right judgment, not with judging by appearances and seeing how much we can get away with either passively or actively. But this is echoed from Leviticus 5. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, which is what I was just writing about before I started recording this session, though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter yet does not speak, if anyone sins, how is he sinning? By not speaking. And it says he will bear his iniquity, which is to say that passively standing by while an innocent person is accused wrongfully of a crime they didn't commit, and you know they didn't commit it. You saw what happened, and you refuse to testify. It is a sin according to God, not according to me, not my opinion. According to God's word, it is a sin. And at the same time, if you see that somebody is guilty, you saw them do it, you know that they did it, and there's a call to testify. Now this has become a legal matter. Now there are criminal charges. Now you're in a court of law, perhaps, or at least you know that court is in session. Maybe you're not there personally if you are committed to not testifying, but you know that your testimony could ensure that justice is served here. And then a guilty person is punished appropriately for the crime they've committed. Let's say it's murder. You saw them commit the murder. You heard from a mutual acquaintance that they were confessing privately that they had done this thing or they were threatening on the front end. You know that they're guilty. You know that they committed this murder and your testimony could make sure that they are put away to where they can't commit other murders. And you say nothing. You refuse to testify because you're afraid of being punished. You're afraid of reprisals. It's a sin. That's a wicked thing. Also, oh, just by the way, this is part of why it's so important that the death penalty be served in the case of murderers. Because what happens when somebody is convicted of murder, but it was eyewitness testimony from somebody that they're going to be able to track down when they get out of prison, if they're just going to go to prison and then they're going to be let out at a certain point, what happens when it was testimony of somebody who saw it that actually leads to the conviction. And this person's already a murderer. They've already committed murder once. And when they get out, what do you think they're liable to do? Go after the person who testified against them. So you'll hear people talking about how the death penalty is so cruel and it's out of step with being pro-life. Conservatives and Christians in particular, Christian conservatives in America are derided for being pro-life with regards to the question of abortion and not pro-life, allegedly, in the case of capital punishment for murderers. And 
The answer to that is I am pro the life of would-be victims of this person in the future. I am also pro agreeing with God that their blood is on their own head. They have forfeited their life. I am not pro-death. They're pro-death, and that's why they need to be put to death, a life for a life. Otherwise, what happens? We get more and more lawlessness. But also notice here in Leviticus 19, there's a lot. There's a lot, a lot. We see every one of you shall revere his father and mother, keep the Lord's Sabbaths, not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. You are called to offer up worship and sacrifice that will be pleasing to God, which you know will be pleasing, and to not dilly-dally in following through with that. Don't drag it out. You're also called here to not harvest absolutely every little bit of a crop so that there is something for the poor among you and sojourners, people who are just passing through. God says that. God says to do that. You should be generous in that way. It doesn't mean you're going to go out and harvest it and then take it to the poor and the sojourner, but it does mean that if you see the poor and the sojourner collecting some of the leftovers and the scraps, because that's all they might eat today, good, and let them be. But we see here, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Both alike lead to all kinds of injustice. Just two days ago was May Day. And May Day historically has been the mark of the beginning of spring. So you might be familiar with maypoles, festivals being thrown and held to celebrate the beginning of summer in ancient days. This was a European festival, typically celebrated halfway between the spring equinox and the summer solstice. Festivals for May Day could be held the night before, known as May Eve, but they could also be held on May Day. But May Day takes on a different connotation in our day. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, May Day is also called Workers' Day or International Workers' Day. It's the day that commemorates the struggles and gains made by workers and the labor movement. It is observed in many countries on May 1st. In the United States and Canada, a similar observance known as Labor Day occurs on the first Monday of September. Now, I bring this up because some of what else we're going to be talking about in this episode pertains very much to this forbidding to be partial to the poor, while at the same time, you are called and commanded to make allowances for the poor in a provisional way. Not that you don't give them negative consequences if they break the law or if they sin, if they commit a crime. You don't show partiality to the poor and say, oh, well, you're poor. Like a George Soros-backed DA in a major American city will Oh, you're poor. We'll let it slide. We'll let you off with a warning. Please don't do that. No, we're commanded to not do that thing that the George Soros DAs are doing in our cities. We're commanded to not do that. But the flip side is you don't defer to the great. So if a man has a lot of wealth, a lot of power, 
a high position, do be respectful and be wise, but don't suppose that deference to somebody with a lot of wealth and power is what you're called to. In being respectful, you don't want to cross a line and then start letting the rich off scot-free because, well, they have a lot of wealth. They have a lot of connections in this town. They own a lot of the businesses. They contribute a lot to various campaigns and various charities, and we wouldn't want to make them upset. People will be upset with us if we accuse them of doing this thing that was wrong, which we know that they did. God says, you will be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, amidst the list of other things we're told to not do, and we are told to do, don't defer to the great among you. In righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So, therefore, you don't lay it on extra thick when your neighbor is poor, because, ah, the poor, they're just lazy, good-for-nothings, should have gone to college, should have applied themselves in high school. If they would just stop being so worthless and simple and stupid, then we wouldn't have to look at their mess, deal with it. No, 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 no. Don't be biased against people who are poor. There can be valid reasons why people are poor that have nothing to do with bad character or lack of intelligence. Actually, you can have poor people come about because those who were great, and by great here, we mean wealthy and powerful, not great like, man, this guy's just super awesome and has such good character. No, no. Somebody can have a lot of wealth and power and connections, and we call them great because they're mighty. They have a lot of pull. They can make things happen. And when that's the case, and we defer to them, you can make poor people out of the would-be victims of the one who is so great and powerful. You can have a two-tiered justice system, but it's equally bad. And Folks on the left in the United States of America, the rank-and-file leftists don't understand this. It's equally bad if you're partial to the poor and you have a two-tiered justice system that way. You're not actually furthering the cause of doing justice and judging rightly. In righteousness shall you judge your neighbor, God says. You're not actually doing that if you don't believe anything a person says if they make a certain amount per year or if they have property, or if they're thought highly of in the community. You just always assume the worst about them. That's not judging rightly. What does he say in verse 16 here? You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. So signed is God himself. Think of when somebody goes to buy a house, and they've got all the mortgage documentation and all the various title, paperwork, and all kinds of things. It can take hours to sign all the paperwork to buy a house or to sell a house for that matter. But you have all these little fields for initialing and for signing your name. And each one says, I attest or I certify. And when you initial each one of those, you're 
making it very clear for all future persons who are going to review that paperwork. Yes, you read this paragraph too. Yep, you meant this one too. Yep, and this one also. And that's what God is doing here in Leviticus 19. I mean this, and 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 and all of this is meant by me, and you will abide by it because I am your God. Now, briefly, and then we'll move on to some current events items, I want to talk just a little bit about the latter half of this chapter. We've talked to this point about the question of justice, and of course, The latter half of this chapter has to do with justice as well. Don't get me wrong. But verse 19 throws a lot of people for a loop where it says, you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. And snarky new atheists will say, oh, check the tags on your shirts and pants, if you've got a blended fabric, you're not obeying this. Aha, you hypocrite. You hypocrite now. Therefore, you can't say anything about transgenderism. You can't say anything about homosexuality. You can't say anything about abortion. You can't say anything about anything because you wear a cotton and polyester blend. Mm-hmm. Aha. And oh, by the way, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. What's that about? Who cares? What does this mean? What does this matter? You're following some old book that was written thousands of years ago. And what an idiot, right? We need to have new books that tell us new things that are relevant today, not like your old dusty book written by men who claimed that they got these things from God. Well, let me just propose to you an alternative attitude a better attitude. Not that I'm trying to be holier than thou, but I do want to be holier than that. (laughs) I want to set my eyes a little higher, set my sights a little higher than that much, because that's just scoffing, obviously. Lest you suppose I am straw manning here, a new atheist, allow me to quote Sam Harris himself from Reddit. There's a Reddit group for Sam Harris Org, which showed up in a notification recommended for me on Reddit this morning. And here's the quote from Sam Harris. When things really matter, and putting this at 30,000 feet in a storm sharpens this up, we want real experts to be in charge. And we are at 30,000 feet a lot of the time on a lot of issues, whether they're public health issues, whether it's a geopolitical emergency like Ukraine, climate change. This idea of being governed and ruled by experts has been tried now for a century. And the worst atrocities of the 20th century might be eclipsed in the 21st by following this kind of thinking. This is very top-down, and that's ironic, coming from an atheist who objects to God giving us the 30,000-foot view on how we then should live. It's ironic that he sees the need for, he feels the need for a 30,000-foot view when we have problems, we have troubles. He lists public health, he means COVID, he mentions Ukraine, and then he talks about climate change and what he is calling for, we already have in God's word. 
you want a 30,000 foot view? You can't get a better 30,000 foot view than God's view on these things. And the experts have shown themselves for a century at least when they are godless to be able to rationalize the worst atrocities because it's always the ends justify the means. Any means whatsoever can be justified so long as the expert told us to do it. We were just following orders. But that is actually showing deference to the great. And we're told not to. When this is a question of justice with regards to public health, and it was with COVID, there was a great deal of injustice in the lockdowns, the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates. There was a great deal of injustice that was perpetrated by the so-called experts. And other experts who disagreed were shut up and silenced, marginalized. They had their character and their credibility assassinated for all to see, unless they were just snuffed out before you could even hear what they had to say. The situation in Ukraine is a question of justice also. And how would it be if the experts, so-called, just so happened to be profiting mightily off of the continuation of that conflict. The conflict happening in the first place, but also the continuation of that conflict so that they can use it as an excuse for failing to deliver results or actually delivering very bad results and oppressing their neighbor. If somebody says, well, I need to take this from you and this from you and this from you and this from you, and you say, why? And they say, well, it's needed for Ukraine. And all the while, they're going off behind the scenes and adding it to their own cash. Maybe a little bit gets sent off to Ukraine, sure. But then it comes right back. Actually, what is that? Do we need the experts? Should we just trust anybody who says, I'm an expert? I have a 30,000 foot view. Listen to me. Do what I tell you. How about climate change? When climate change initiatives result in us all being poorer and some of us in this world not being able to afford food, clothing, housing, utilities costs, not being able to transport ourselves to and from places of work and family gatherings. Do we need to trust the experts who are engaged in single factor analysis and they know a whole lot supposedly about very little? They are great in small matters and small and great matters that pertain to yours and my livelihood and ability to provide and protect for our families? Should we trust the experts in that case and defer to the great? Should we be partial towards them? We already have the 30,000 foot view from God. So no thank you. Thank you, but no thank you, Sam Harris. Moving on. Federal oil and gas lease sales return to regularity in Montana. I won't talk a lot about this, but the Billings Gazette has a piece written by Tom Ludy, which was just published yesterday. And in this piece, we see that for one thing, under the Biden administration, sales of oil and gas leases have been severely curtailed, and that's loosening up a little bit, at least for the 2023 schedule in Montana and North Dakota. There's a map included. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go check it out for yourself. I examined the map, and I'm sorry to say, I'm sad to say, 
that all of the little red triangles are more in the Watford City, Williston area, or north of Sydney. I used to operate oil and gas wells in both areas back when I was an operator. I did automation. Before we moved to Colorado, I did automation for oil and gas sites all throughout that area. But then we also see up near the Canada border, the Haver field office has got several sales expected. Malta field office has a couple. Lewistown field office has a handful. The Billings field office has a few just west of Billings. But I bring this up because many of us are aware that the Biden administration has been very unfriendly towards oil and gas. He made promises on the front end that he was going to make it very difficult to impossible for oil and gas to continue to be profitable in this country. And if that's loosening up a little bit, I'm glad for the news, but it's too little too late. And we shouldn't defer to the so-called experts on climate change when it translates into energy being far more expensive than it needs to be, particularly for people who live in the West, in remote rural areas like Eastern Montana, for instance. My wife and I used to have to drive our family four and a half hours one way from Sydney to Billings to get decent access to health care, or if we had family flying in or flying out to pick them up from the airport or drop them back off at the airport to go to Costco, four and a half hours one way. And we made that trip every month or every other month. That takes fuel. And when fuel is more and more expensive than it needs to be, because the so-called experts are trying to push for renewable energy, so-called, even though it's not always windy and it's not always sunny. And oh, by the way, making the equipment that harnesses the sun and the wind and the waves, that's not carbon neutral. Do you think all that stuff gets made out of sun, out of wind, out of waves? No, no. It's harvested from the earth. It's mined from the earth, transported, refined, manufactured, finished, transported to the sites where it's going to be installed. That's not even carbon neutral. From the jump, before you even start making any electricity with the wind turbine or the hydroelectric or the solar panels, you are not uh, starting carbon neutral. If we keep on trusting the experts, we're liable to have the great leap forward like China did, like Mao Zedong did. We are liable to have that on a global scale and billions of people could die. I'm not saying that to try and scare you, but just to make it very clear, the stakes here, if we listen to Sam Harris's line of reasoning, the stakes here are extraordinarily high arguably higher than they've been in recorded human history. But Joel Abbott has a little bit of bright news over at Not To Be. He published this piece on May Day. This is an important thread on why you don't want to leave America when the apocalypse kicks off. Here we've got highlighted some tweets from a certain Michael Girdley pointing out that The United States of America has some very favorable geography. And as a result of this very favorable geography, we are able to grow crops across this country 
like very few places in the world are able to grow crops. In fact, like no one else, we have an incredible system of rivers in the U.S., an incredible network of rivers. This not just waters the crops that we grow, but it also makes it possible to transport the foodstuffs inland, deep, far inland. We also have a remarkable amount of coastline, and that's key when it comes to being able to protect our borders, protect our country from foreign invasion. The U.S. is the fourth largest country by area, Michael Girdley points out, big enough to have scale on a global market. China, Russia, and Canada are bigger. The difference is the quality of the land. Much of Canada, Russia, and China is unproductive. Also, the U.S. is number one in oil production, number 11 in reserves, number one in natural gas production, number four in reserves. We have abundant, abundant natural resource wealth here in the U.S., but we also have three times more coastline than all of Europe. We have five times more. If you can believe this, we have five times more coastline than the continent of Africa. And that is if you look at the map, because Africa doesn't have a whole lot of inlets and large bays. That means we can control the ocean in our economic zones more easily with our Navy. That's important. Also, too, our ocean currents lead to some pretty fantastic climate given where we are relative to the equator. Canada will never be a rival to the United States of America. They trade more with us than they do from province to province, again, due to geography. Mexico will never be a rival to the United States, again, because of geography because of arable land, because of climate. But let me just call a timeout here on Michael Girdley's glowing assessment of America's prospects. If we do have a global collapse coming here very shortly, if we have nuclear war with Russia or China or both, yes, the United States of America is where you want to live. That's true. But for all the same reasons that this country is so critically important and easy to defend, it also makes us a very tempting target. And what are we seeing? We're seeing efforts from China to make inroads here in the U.S. We're seeing the left very aggressively taking over our institutions and having seized our institutions for decades. They've been trying to convert America to Secular humanism, progressivism, in essence, leftism, in essence, at root, Marxism in the most radical cases, which are increasingly the more mainstream cases on the left. And so my question would be, what happens, what really happens to the United States of America if the way in which we are taken over is something like how the city of Troy fell in ancient times. According to Homer, this gift horse was brought into the city filled with soldiers who proceeded to jump out of the belly, open the gates, and let the rest of the Achaeans in. What 
happens when that kind of a thing has been happening with regards to China in this country, with regards to Marxist ideals in this country. What happens when we're taken over from within? Do we need to be invaded in a conventional way from without? No, indeed. No, we don't. Along those lines, I want to play for you a very important lecture or portions of a lecture. You should definitely listen to the full video. But here we've got Cardinal Pritchard over at Not to Be posting the day before yesterday, May Day, appropriately. Take some time out of your day and listen to James Lindsay explain to the European Parliament how cultural Marxism is taking over the West. Without further ado, here is cut one, James Lindsay at the EU Parliament a couple of weeks ago. Take a listen. Hello, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I want to uh, address something Tom just said, which is, in fact, that woke is supposed to advance equity in Europe. So here's the definition of equity and see if it sounds like a definition of anything else you've ever heard of. The definition of equity comes from the public administration literature. It was written by a man named George Fredrickson. And the definition is an administered political economy in which shares are adjusted so that citizens are made equal. Does that sound like anything you've heard of before? Like socialism. They're going to administer an economy to make shares equal. The only difference between equity and socialism is the type of property that they redistribute, the type of shares. They're going to redistribute social and cultural capital in addition to economic and material capital. And so this is my thesis when we say what is woke? Woke is Maoism with American characteristics, if I might borrow from Mao himself, who said that his philosophy was Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics, which means woke is Marxism. And it's a very provocative statement. It's something you will certainly hear it is not, that it is different. And the, the, the professors and the philosophers will spend a large amount of time explaining to you why, no, no, it's about economics when it's Marxism. This is social, this is cultural, this is different. It's not different. I need you to think biologically for one moment, and I don't mean about your bodies. We could do that. That's a different topic. I want you to think how we organize plants and animals when we study them. They're species, but above species, there are the genus of the animals. So you think like the cats, all the cats, but you have tigers, you have lions, you have house cats, you have whatever, leopards, many different kinds of cats. If we think of Marxism as a genus of ideological thought, then classical economic Marxism is a species. Radical feminism is a species in this same genus. Critical race theory is a genus, or sorry, a species in this genus. Queer theory is a species in this genus. Post-colonial theory that's plaguing Europe is a species in this genus. And they have something that binds them together called intersectionality that makes them treat it as if they are all one thing. But the logic is Marxist. And I want to convince you of that, because Marx had a very simple proposition, but we get lost. We think that Marx was talking about economics because he often talked about economics. He wrote a book called Capital. It's a very famous book. And we think, well, this is about economic theory. But this isn't true. It, it's only true on the surface. If we go below the surface, what Marx was talking about was something different. We know what Marx's hypothesis was. 
was that we must seize the means of production if we're going to bring socialism to the nations, to the world. We have to seize the means of production. So we have to ask, what does he mean? And if we think that it's about capital, then we miss what he means. If you think it's about the means of production in the factory with a hammer and the means of production in the field with a sickle, then you miss what it means. Because Marx explained what makes human beings special in his earlier writings. And what makes human beings special is that man is a being that is incomplete and knows that he is incomplete. He is a man whose true nature has been forgotten to him, which is social being. He is a socialist at heart who doesn't realize it. And the reason he doesn't realize it is because of the economic conditions operating as the means of construction or production, not just of the economy, but of him, but of man, of society, and particularly of history. Marx said that he had the first scientific study of history. How was history produced? By man, doing man's activity, and man's key activity was economic activity, as he saw it. And so economic production doesn't just produce the goods and services of the economy, it produces society itself. And society, in turn, produces man. He called this the inversion of praxis. And so when he says we must seize the means of production, and he's talking about factories and fields, he's actually talking about how we construct who we are as human beings so that we might complete ourselves, so that we might complete history. And at the end of history, mankind will remember that he is a social being, and we will have a socialist society, a perfect communism that transcends private property, is how he put it. He said, in fact, that communism is the transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement. That's a quote from the Economic Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844. So Marx was interested in controlling or understanding and controlling how man produces himself. And he writes about this ex exclusively in the 1840s, very deeply. How do we do this? And he looks at the economic conditions and he says, this is where it is. And that's why we get economic Marxism. And that's why we think Marx was an economist. But Marx was never an economist. He was a theologian. He wanted to produce a religion for mankind that would supersede all of the religions of mankind and bring him back to his true social nature. And this is the true fact of Marx. And what the goal was, like I said, is to complete man. So what he said is, well, how are we building man currently? All of his economic analysis is about how are we building man at present through what he called material determinism. And he said, well, what we have is a special form of private property in our society. Our society is organized around private property. And so all of our thoughts organize around private property. In other words, there's a special kind of property that the bourgeois elite class has access to, and then they organize society to exclude everybody else from access to that property through exploitation, through alienation, through estrangement, through oppression. And so what Karl Marx was proposing is that economics becomes a vehicle to separate society into a bourgeois class that has access to a special form of property, the people who have access wish to retain that, so they oppress people and keep other people out of that special form of property. They erect a system of classism to do that. It's enforced by an ideology called capitalism that believes that this is the right way to uh, engage in the world. And what we have to do is awaken the underclass, the proletariat, to the real conditions and the fact that they are historical agents of change and bring them to do a revolution and transform society so that we would have 
equity or socialism, whichever word you want. They have the same definition. Now, let's say that we step out. We, this is, we, we step back from this species, this economic species, Homo economicus, and we step back to the genus, and we look at this idea, a special form of property that segregates society into people who have, the bourgeois and the people who do not have, who are in class conflict with an ideology that keeps this in place. And the underclass must awaken with consciousness to fight back and to seize the means of production of that form of deterministic property. And now we say, change out class, put in race, and watch. We get critical race theory falls out of the hat, just like that. Very simple. In 1993, Cheryl Harris wrote a long article for the Harvard Law Review called Whiteness as Property. She explained that whiteness or white privilege constitutes a kind of cultural private property. She says it must be abolished in order to have racial justice. Just like Karl Marx said that in the Communist Manifesto, he wrote, communism can be summarized in a single sentence, the abolition of private property. Well, this is why critical race theory calls to abolish whiteness, because whiteness is a form of private property. People who have access to this property are whites or white adjacent, or they act white. These are words out of the American lexicon that they've used to describe how, how people gain access to the private property. People without that are people of color, and they are oppressed by systemic racism. Systemic racism is enforced by an ideology of white supremacy instead of capitalism. If you think of whiteness as a form of cultural capital, white supremacy as they define it is identical to capitalism. It's the belief, it's not believing that white people are superior, it's believing that white people have access to the control of society and should maintain that. Even if you don't actually believe that, if you merely support that, you have adopted the, the ideology of white supremacy into your mind. And so you have the exact same system and the goal is to awaken a racial consciousness in people so that they will band together as a class and seize the means of cultural production so that white cultural production is no longer the dominant mode. It's a big mystery in Europe, I know, in the UK, throughout Europe, I hear this question again and again. Why on earth is this very American phenomenon about slavery and so on that doesn't apply to our country? Why is it popular here? It's because it's not about history at all. It's not about slavery at all. Those are excuses that they use. It's about creating a class consciousness that's against this form of property called whiteness, that's against the dominant culture that may just be a matter of fact, say, if you're in Europe. That's why. Because it becomes a site by which people can come together and they can channel resentment and try to claim power. And there you have it. I'll cut right there. That is 10 and a half minutes into this 28 minutes, 20 seconds video that middlemaga.com stuck into mid on Twitter tweeted out April 30th of this year. The rest of his remarks are very much worth listening to. I encourage you, I, I strongly encourage you, listen to the full speech if you pick it up at 10 minutes, 34 seconds, and listen to the end, you will have missed not a thing. But he goes on to explain how not just critical race theory falls out of the hat if you substitute race here, but you also get radical gender theory. You get queer theory dropping out of the hat if you substitute gender and sexuality for economics. 
So what wokeness is, as James Lindsay explains, it's Marxism with American characteristics. This is a Marxist mode of thought that is calling on people. It's explicitly calling on people to show preference for the poor. And ironically, one of the ways in which those who know better or who object are silenced and dismissed, marginalized, is we are told to trust the experts. Trust the experts doesn't seem like it would go hand in hand with giving preferential treatment in matters of justice to the poor, but it does. And so they get you coming and going when it comes to race, gender and sexuality, climate change, and ultimately economics. As James Lindsay points out, and I can attest to this, having read the Communist Manifesto here earlier this year, Marx is interested in man as the means of production from each according to his ability to each according to his need is talking not just about property. It's talking about people more to the point. And this is why in communist countries, there is so much oppression and there is so much tyranny. This is why they're totalitarian because they don't regard the individual as having any rights, only responsibilities, only the responsibility to give what is demanded of him by the collective. But then that is not at all compatible with the Lord loving a cheerful giver, nor is it compatible with the command from God in Leviticus 19 to not oppress your neighbor. That command loses all its meaning, all of its value, all of its semantic range is collapsed if it's not possible to oppress your neighbor. So long as your neighbor has something that you don't have, it's also impossible in the Marxist way of conceiving of society and the world increasingly, it's not possible for you to covet what belongs to your neighbor because nothing belongs to your neighbor that doesn't belong to you as well. And so this is where we see that Marxism is completely incompatible with Christianity. You may remember, if you've been listening to this podcast for some time, I did an episode last year about some remarks that Martin Lloyd-Jones made in his study in the Sermon on the Mount about how Christians can belong to all political parties and the Christian message is not anti-communist. And while that's true in a certain sense, as I pointed out in that episode where I talked about this, it's tragically wrong in another sense. And that becomes clear when you read Richard Wormbrand and his book, Karl Marx and the Satanic Roots of Communism. It becomes clear when you read the Communist Manifesto that Karl Marx is a Satanist. It's almost as if in his writings, he is writing the very words of Satan by which Satan intends to take over the world. And in some sense, the Christian can look at that and say, well, okay, that's one way that the book of Revelation is brought into fruition and these things come about and happen. And we don't need to be alarmed. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be angry. We don't need to be fearful because the end of that book is written and we know that the saints triumph 
in Christ, we are more than conquerors. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Yes. Amen. 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 I don't mean to say anything against that or contrary to that whatsoever. What I would add is all of that is true and be sober and vigilant for your adversary. The devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and putting on the whole armor of God in our context today must involve taking special interest in what's happening in our country, what's happening in the West, what's happening around the world with the push for global Marxism, global communism. We have to recognize that these things don't accidentally go together. They go together because the common denominator is Satan's war against God, against the law of God, against the commands of God, the precepts of God, the holiness of God, and those who would seek to bear his image and would pray as Christ taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, which is another way of saying your name is holy, which is to say we agree with Leviticus 19. When God says again and again and again, I am Yahweh your God, you will be holy for I am holy. The idea is not to be holier than thou, but the idea is to be holier than that because what Marx was arguing for, what his disciples have preached to their converts is unholy and unclean and lawless and wicked. And you might just as soon say that somebody could be a Christian and a Satanist as say that they could be a Christian and a Marxist or a Christian and a communist. These things do not go together. They are completely incompatible. They do not go together. But it's interesting. I'll note this before we move on. Seated behind James Lindsay in the EU parliament is a older gentleman. Perhaps I'm being too generous to call him a gentleman. There's an older man. I want to be respectful, but I don't want to speak too highly as to his character The name tag on the desk in front of him is Frank Ferretti. He's a Hungarian, according to Wikipedia, born May 3rd, 1947. So happy birthday, Frank Ferretti. Today is your birthday. He is described as a Hungarian-Canadian academic and emeritus professor of sociology at the University of Kent. He is well known for his work on sociology of fear, education, therapy culture, paranoid parenting, and sociology of knowledge. What you might not know if all you read is that first paragraph is that he emigrated to Canada after the failed 1956 uprising. He's lived in Britain since 1969, most recently in Faversham. But wait a second, I think we skipped over something. You might be wondering, what was the 1956 Hungarian revolution or Hungarian uprising? It was a countrywide revolution against the government of the Hungarian People's Republic and the policies caused by the government's subordination to the Soviet Union. The uprising lasted 12 days before being crushed by Soviet tanks and troops on November 4th, 1956. Thousands were killed and wounded, and nearly a quarter million Hungarians fled the country. So what we have here is a failed uprising in Hungary trying to throw off the rule of the USSR. And so what is the interest of Frank Ferretti? 
there's a paragraph here in the section on Wikipedia, RCP and offshoots. And I quote, a former student radical, he became involved in left-wing politics in Britain in the 1970s, in particular as a member of the International Socialists under the pseudonym Frank Richards with his followers. He was expelled from the IS in 1973 and formed the Revolutionary Communist Group and then broke from that in 1976 to form the Revolutionary, rather, Communist Tendency, refounded as the Revolutionary Communist Party in 1978. Okay, so... Are you getting more of a picture here? The RCP's magazine is literally called Living Marxism. Their December 1990 issue ran an article by Ferretti entitled Midnight in the Century, which argued that the corrosive effect of the collapse of both Stalinism and reformism on the working class meant that, quote, for the time being at least, the working class has no political existence, end quote. This signaled the reorientation of the party towards more libertarian positions and its formal dissolution by the end of the decade. So all that is to say, you have up front James Lindsay giving this speech, which I played 10 and a half minutes of for you. And in the background, you've got this Frank Ferretti who looks very uncomfortable, keeps shifting in his seat. He is also an attendee of this discussion. And what you need to recognize is Communists are definitely most certainly real, and they are working. And they're not stupid people. They're unwise people, but they're not stupid people. They're not operating in a blatant advertisement of their intentions. They're working in subversive ways, trying to inject their ideas in a cultural way, as James Lindsay explains in the next 18 minutes of that lecture he gave, speech he gave to the EU parliament. Now, taking that into consideration, now you know that, let's come back to the States. The Billings Gazette, April 30th, 2023, digital edition, has a front page story titled, Two-Spirit Student Leaves St. Labrie. Solomon Sully Montoya describes himself as two-spirit. He has a thick beard and long, dark hair and wears makeup and jewelry and identifies himself as two-spirit. What's the point of his being two-spirit revolution? The issue is not the issue. As David Horowitz quotes an SDS radical, The issue is never the issue. The issue is always the revolution. In other words, the cause, whether inner city blacks or women, is never the real cause, but only an occasion to advance the real cause, which is the accumulation of power to make the revolution. There's a quote from his book, Barack Obama's Rules for Revolution, the Alinsky Model. The school, I should point out that this two-spirit student, Sully Montoya, has left, is a Catholic school just outside the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. It's a Catholic school. And so what is the point of his dressing this way, being at the school and the Billings Gazette making this their front page news? The point is to advance the revolution, to cast everything in the mold of oppressor and oppressed, to take 
from those who are said to have and to give to those who are said to have not. To put the burden of proof on the Native American executive director of St. Labrie Indian School, Curtis Yarlat, to put the burden of proof on him to prove why somebody who is flouting all of these conventions shouldn't be treated with the same respect, the same deference as those who are adhering to the school's dress code and stated moral vision. Quoting the article, On the day students were encouraged to wear ribbon skirts or shirts, Montoya, who is Crow and uses he, him pronouns, chose to wear a pale green, pink, and blue ribbon skirt that his mother made. He paired it with heels and a white t-shirt, and he brought a pair of ribbon pants, just in case. So that is to say, he knew, right? He knew going into this that he would be asked to change. Before he made it to his first period classroom, Montoya was called into the office. Quote, they told me that I'm not allowed to wear that, he said. Quote, I asked why, and they told me it's because I'm a male and males aren't allowed to wear skirts. I told them, today's a ribbon skirt day and it's part of my culture. I'm allowed to wear this, end quote. When administrators told him to change clothes, Montoya tried to negotiate. He put on the ribbon pants his mother made, but he kept the heels. He said he was again told he wasn't allowed to wear the shoes because you're a guy. Montoya sat in in in-school suspension that day and went home for the rest of the week on out-of-school suspension. Curtis Yarlot, the executive director of St. Labrie Indian School, said he would not specifically comment on Montoya, but added the situation, quote, goes back to mutual respect. Quote, we have our rules, Yarlot said. Quote, we have our expectations. It's a two-way street. We ask that students and employees respect those just as we respect them as people and who they are. We don't try to change people, he added, but it's a two-way street. So let's just be very clear. Montoya is very aware of what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. The Billings Gazette knows what he's doing. We as the readers or onlookers should know what he's doing. He's agitating and trying to disrupt. And all of this, even though the school administrator, the executive director, is himself a Native American, very obviously, just like James Lindsay was saying, he'll be portrayed as acting white. And this will be portrayed as white supremacy. And all that has to meet in the way of criteria in order to be classified as that, fill in the blank, oppressive mold, oppressive category, all it has to do in order to meet the criteria is involve saying, this is our private property. This belongs to us. This school is our school. This code is our code. This faith in Christ is our faith in Christ. These are our stipulations to you. And whether the activists know entirely, fully, well and truly what it is that they're doing, what they're really opposed to here is someone telling them, no, you can't have that. No, you can't do that. That belongs to somebody else. No, you can't break this. No, we're not going to let you disrupt. That's all that is needed for this formula to create an endless number of scandals. And this is what the people who are not well-read on these things and who say peace, peace when there is no peace, or they like to hear, their itching ears like to hear peace, peace when there is no peace. What those people don't understand and won't understand is that this is a 
comprehensive plan and program to destroy us. It really is. To destroy your ability to own anything, what is the Great Reset tagline? The year is 2030. You'll own nothing and be happy. That abolition of private property is Marxist. And it's being pushed by the WEF and it's being pushed by the United Nations and it's being pushed by activist newspapers and journalists and TV stations and websites. It's being pushed by activist district attorneys. It's being pushed by activist corporations. And if we want to guard our souls and our testimony and our faithfulness to God, we have to understand that these things are being set up as so many traps. We are being funneled into a brave new world or 1984. Take your pick. Some more on the transgender moment, because again, this gets back to who are so-called cisgendered people to tell me I'm not a man if I say that I'm a man? Who are these so-called cisgendered people to tell me that I'm not a woman when I say that I'm a woman? NTB staff, that would be not the B staff, published May Day. This crazy lady says citing biology, DNA, and bone structure is white supremacy when discussing transgenderism. I'll play this cut for you. Cut two, tweeted out by Libs of TikTok. This one's a much shorter one than the last. This is just a minute long. But listen closely. Listen closely to what this young woman says. Something keeps calling you back to this comment. And I think it's the fact that, like, as a black woman, you are using white supremacist talking points to defend your transphobia. And that's really heartbreaking. Because do you realize that talking about things like bone structure is what white supremacists do to, like, separate themselves from black people? Like, historically, that's what they've done. White supremacists have said that white people and black people have DNA, we're different species, we have different bones, we have different muscles, as a way to be like black people, other. We don't want them around us. And now you're doing the same thing with trans women. Like, that's, that's heartbreaking, especially because that same rhetoric will be used against you in the future. Transphobia is used against black women all the time. But sure, your bone structure makes you a woman. To be clear, if all you're getting is the audio, which is the case, in the video, we have a screenshot of a comment from a black woman, quote, literal DNA, bone structure, chromosomes make me a woman, but do you? So here you have a, it looks to me like lighter skinned woman of color, as they are calling people of color these days a lighter-skinned woman of color is taking a darker-skinned woman of color to task for insisting, no, uh, biological gender is knowable, and therefore people can make false claims and we can say, no, you're not. Or we can make true claims and we can say, yes, I am. Thanks to Not The Bee staff for bringing this to us. At the end of their post, they include a screenshot of Male versus female pelvis, uh, just, you know, pointing out the male pelvic girdle is noticeably different than the female pelvic girdle. The pubic arch is narrow for the male. 
wide for the female. This is a fact. There's a wide birth canal, and the coccyx for a female is different, noticeably different, so that women can give birth. Men can't give birth. Women can give birth. This is a fact. And the people who are pushing the denial of that are the ones telling us to trust the experts and that the science is settled and calling us every evil, hurtful thing they can think of if we argue the point. And if we have stats and we have diagrams and we have the literature and it's self-evident. This is much bigger than a debate about gender, though. This is much bigger than a question of what clothes we wear, going back to Leviticus 19. I don't believe that the whole wearing a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material is first and foremost about the clothing you wear. It's symbolic, but first and foremost, this is a rejection of trying to have it both ways, where you're going to worship God and also all of these other gods of the nations that God is driving out of Canaan, or which God has already demonstrated his supremacy, his dominance over in Egypt. You're not going to obey and worship God and also keep all the statutes of the pagan nations. That's what it means to not sow your field with two kinds of seed or wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. And transgenderism or non-binaryism is a complete rebellion against this command from God. And for those of us like myself who say, absolutely not, I'm not going to be a party to that. I'm not going to affirm that. I'm not going to endorse that. For us to say that will be called holier than thou and every other ugly thing that can be reached for. But my interest is not in being holier than you. My interest is in being holy for my God is holy. I want to be holy because God has called me to be holy. That's the point. But Carlos Garcia has a piece over at theblaze.com. Transgender reporter tries to defend Chelsea Clinton and inadvertently proves she's pushing porn for children in public schools. Chelsea Clinton tweeted out, over 50% of the attempted book bans last year involved books with LGBTQ plus characters and themes. Books are a vital way that children, adolescents, and adults learn about themselves and our world. Bans such as these are nothing but harmful. And for the featured image in this NBCnews.com link that she includes in her tweet, there is what looks like a adolescent or a teenager with a stack of books with one book open being read, titled Gender Queer. Now, I'm still not on Twitter, just to be clear. So it's not all as it should be just yet. But one really great thing that has come with Elon Musk purchasing Twitter and firing 80% of the staff is that he's also made it possible for readers to add context that they think people might want to know. And in this case, the context that readers added to the tweet by Chelsea Clinton says, genderqueer, the book shown in the photo, features sexually explicit material. This book contains visual depictions of oral sex, masturbation, and adult sexual contact with a minor. This is important because 
what the left has in view, what the cultural Marxists have in view, is normalizing the sexualization of children and vilifying anyone who says, no, you can't. No, you don't. That's my child. So Seth Dillon, CEO of the Babylon Bee, owner and CEO of the Babylon Bee, got into a little bit of a back and forth with Media Matters LGBTQ director, Ari Drennan. Dylan tweeted, Chelsea Clinton has come out in favor of porn for kids. Ari Drennan responded, weird way to tell us you're yanking it to children's books. Seth, Dylan then posted a page of the very graphic sexual imagery from the book that Chelsea Clinton was supporting and Drennan called it out for what it was. Quote, imagine how sick and depraved you have to be to call this a children's book, replied Dylan. Hey, Seth, I think you meant this for my DMs. You just sent me an unsolicited drawing of a blowjob, Drennan tweeted. So your position is that you're sexually harassing another man and you think that will go over better with your audience? Stop sending me this stuff, Seth. It's creepy, Drennan said in another tweet. In 2021, the book was targeted by critics after it was found at the library of the Fairfax County Public Schools in Virginia. The author defended the book by citing ancient Greek poetry and pottery art, which I would say you could also tell us about how the Greeks offered human sacrifices to their pagan gods and therefore normalize a resumption of that in our day. You could also point out that many of the Greeks practiced pedophilia, and you could therefore normalize that, which is the next hop, skip, and a jump that you're not saying out loud just yet, but that's what it is. Are the Greeks our standard? No, indeed. But this really does actually affirm what Seth Dillon was saying and what those who object to these books were saying when they said, this stuff has no place in our children's libraries or in their public school assignments this is not suitable material for children. This is pornography. For Drennan to reply the way that he did is to admit that this is sexual harassment. So then we've got a whole nation of kids who are being sexually harassed, and the left wants to focus on how it's your problem, conservatives. It's your problem, Christians. It's your problem, parents, if you say, no, you can't. No, you don't. Stop it. Not my children. Now, a curious thing here, there was a video that was shared to Facebook by a friend of mine yesterday. I watched it while I was working on some laundry, and then I commented. And I'll play the clip, and then I'll tell you what I commented and some of the back and forth that resulted from my weighing in. Without further ado, here is cut three. Good evening. Uh, Many of you know me, so I am here to discuss this atrocity of assignments. I want to first say, you're a liar. It's not a rumor. I have the proof right here in my phone of the whom with you, with whom would you do it with? And my daughter specifically stated that the teacher put up a will on the class board and it stated anal penetration, oral sex, licking of ear, kissing. And he wanted them to write down the initials of a boy or girl that they would do these activities with. Now, I don't know what's worse, wanting to know my child's sexual fantasy or who they're going to have anal penetration and oral sex with. What is he gaining from this? What do you gain from this information? 
Why has my daughter that naively did the assignment? Because she's scared. She wants to get good grades. She wants to be, you know, get her license. She has to get good grades. And so she does this assignment. Where's the assignment? Why hasn't she had it turned back to her with her grade on it? What is he doing with it? Is this for his spank bank? Is he literally using this for his sexual deviant? These are questions that need to be answered. He, he verbally abused, verbally sexually abused every single child in that classroom. You look up the definition, I gave you the paper for the definition of verbal sexual abuse. Now, sexual abuse is sexual abuse. So where's the criminal charges? Why is he still teaching? Is it because he's the football coach and Churchill's doing good? Don't want to lose that hype? Because football doesn't matter when it comes to our children. Okay? This sexual deviant needs to be removed. If you do not remove him, I'm giving you my word today that tomorrow morning I will go down to the county clerk's office and I will file for the removal of every single one of you. Yeah. <clears throat> and cut. So, what was my comment? <laughs> you might be wondering. Uh, hashtag, and this is why we homeschool. I wrote a book, and this is why we homeschool, because I was leaving that little hashtag here and there, all over the place. I have been for years, all over the interwebs. When stories like this come out all over the country, everybody thinks their school district is different. Everybody thinks their teachers are different. Everybody thinks their school is safe until this happens in their school. It happens all over the country, in schools all over the country. And yet all over the country, you've got parents like this dad and kudos to this dad for saying, you're a liar. You say it's rumored. It's not rumored. I've got the photographic evidence right here. This is an assignment that my daughter was given. Her whole class was given. How is this education? Well, I'll tell you, this is education to the left because the larger program is cultural Marxism and because our public education system in this country was devised by progressives, by so-called liberals. But we've sanitized that term in our minds to where we say, oh, but liberals are for being generous and tolerant and inclusive and open-minded and all the rest. What's so bad about that? Well, at a certain point, you have to say, no, this can't be tolerated. No, this can't be accepted. This can't be affirmed. It wouldn't be generous. It would be actually evil to affirm this, to tolerate this. I played for you on yesterday's episode a clip of Elon Musk and Bill Maher talking about the woke mind virus, as Musk calls it, and where it comes from. Bill Maher made the joke. Maybe it came from bat soup, came from a lab somewhere. Matt Walsh had a really good response to this, actually. I agree with him when he says, yeah, thank you, Bill Maher, for bringing attention to the topic. Thank you. That's good. Also, look in the mirror. If you want to see where the woke mind virus began, to quote Matt Walsh, no, it didn't come from bats and it wasn't grown in a lab and it didn't fall out of the sky. It didn't climb out of the ground or something. Bill, you know what's the origin of the woke mind virus? You, 
You're the origin, not just you, but liberalism, the left, the ideology you espouse. That's where it comes from. It didn't come out of nowhere. It was born from the liberalism that you still ascribe to. It's a logical extension of that. This is a point that needs to be made and that conservatives need to make rather than simply applauding. And the more that people like Bill Maher can pretend that wokeness is completely divorced from the leftism that he ascribes to, the worse it is. Matt Walsh is right. So there's a sense of what have I done that really should be sinking in for the likes of Bill Maher after years of mocking Christianity and conservatives in the name of liberalism the question he should be asking really is, what have I done? How have I contributed to this moment? To say, yep, this is a problem is a start, but it needs to proceed from that to understand how the package you were delivering up to your audience, you were contributing to the delivery of to your audience for years and years, has left us all the weaker in this country to mounting an effective defense against kids only knowing that George Washington owned slaves, and that's all they want to know, and that's all they need to know, because the idea is to abolish the U.S. Constitution as inherently oppressive, to abolish America as inherently oppressive. Another thing James Lindsay said in his speech to the EU Parliament a few weeks ago is that this idea of the push for global citizenship is a farce. Don't think of yourself as an American. Think of yourself as a global citizen, the left says. But that's not possible. There is no nation, global nation, for you to belong to. So what you're really talking about is the abolition of citizenship or the abolition of nations. And the left is happy to start with the United States of America. But even before they get to that, they want to start with wokeness, all in the name of tolerance and inclusivity, diversity, equity, and inclusivity, DEI, or ESG, environmental, social, and governance in the corporate world. I had a recruiter reach out to me last week asking if I would be interested in a job with another engineering firm in the Denver area. And I had a conversation with her. She seemed like a nice, pleasant gal. She said, I'll send you a link to their website. You can check it out. I looked at their website and right up front, the very first page, and a couple of others besides, they bill themselves as specializing in ESG compliance. I don't mean like buried deep within the literature, the marketing, read between the lines and you'll see ESG. I mean, right up front, they say, we are for ESG compliance. That's our specialty. And so I emailed the recruiter back very politely and said, I am not interested. This would not be a good fit for me because I am opposed on grounds of principle to this push for ESG scoring. And I would not be compatible with an engineering firm that is betting on that being what carries the day for the foreseeable future. I'm opposed to this top-down subversion of free market capitalism and individual liberty. Thank you for the call. Thank you for the interest. I will have to decline. And she was polite in her response, but Nevertheless, it's a problem that liberalism and godlessness has given such a pass to so many as it pertains to being hands-off and not delivering justice, either in protecting the innocent or in punishing the guilty. 
So you might be wondering, what was the result of my commenting, and this is why we homeschool? A friend of mine, a personal friend of mine, who is a public school teacher, replied, Garrett Mullet, you'd be surprised the amount of perverse that comes out of the homes of those who homeschool as well. Kudos to this dad for doing his duty as a father. And I replied, would I be surprised? He came back with, there's evil everywhere, but you know this. And I said, I do indeed, but that's not the same thing as saying the odds and concentrations are equal everywhere. He said, of course not. But like the media, it's easy, it's easy for us to pick our reasons. And I don't know what he means by that. The last comment was mine saying, I'm not sure I follow. I'm not sure I get what you're driving at there. But it's just like this, the moral equivalency game. And I understand his interest. He's a public school teacher and he wants to do right by his profession as he sees it. And he's trying to be loyal and he's very invested personally in not throwing in the towel here, but he's wrong. How would it be if that were our response across the board every time, every single time, it turns out that these public schools with orders from on high have sexually verbally abused students or even physically sexually abused students. And why not in the interest of consistency when the materials, the books are normalizing sexual activity between adults and children, between children and children. At a certain point, we will stop being allowed to call it sexual abuse or molestation or rape. And if we follow Joe Biden's logic, there is no such thing as other people's children. So therefore, we don't have any parental rights to say, no, you can't. No, you won't. That's not okay. And oh, by the way, let's do remember the mega donors to Republicans saying that they're going to hold their donations to Ron DeSantis. They're going to keep their powder dry, as one was quoted, because mm, he and his friends, they're just not quite sold on the whole book banning thing. And DeSantis, mm, maybe he's not a good fit for us ideologically. That same mentality is very similar to how a lot of public school teachers, even if they're conservatives, even if they think of themselves as conservatives, they vote Republican, even if they're professing Christians and very sincere in their profession of faith, that is indicative of the shrugging and the practicality as they see it, prudential approach to working within the system as it is. But the Epoch Times has a piece up from Alice Giordano, published April 29th. First state passes law defining gender as a person's biological sex at birth. Kansas is the state in question here, the next state over from Colorado. The featured image is one of what looks like a sunset with a row of women, obviously women, you can tell based on their long hair, silhouetted, and based on their body shape, they have wider hips because they are women standing, holding hands, looking at the sunset. And the caption below this image is, in the past, girls and their peers might have self-diagnosed as bulimic or anorexic, now they may be convincing themselves that they have gender dysphoria when they do not. Social media has amplified the reach of this phenomenon. 
And this is why I say, we homeschool. And if you say, ah, yes, but you're just being holier than thou, I say, no, I'm being holier than that. Because that which I see consistently at root and in the branches of the public education system is hostile to, is an enemy of the true and the good and the beautiful, according to God. I want to be holier than that. I want my household and my family to be holier than that. Not just better, a little bit better. And also, oh, by the way, it's not the point. If you can say, you know of homeschooling families where there was abuse or neglect or they didn't have it all together or they were just weird, it's not the point. You can have all of that and you do in spades in the public schools too. So what's your argument? If this were a complicated math equation and we wanted to simplify it, we would say that cancels out on both ends of the equal sign. So now what's different? Move on, please. Let's talk about the actual differences because that's not one unless you want to make that claim that this is a peculiar problem to homeschooling that actually homeschoolers are the worst for their home education morally, spiritually, intellectually, physically, socially compared with their public school peers. I'll have that debate with you. You won't win that debate, but we'll have that debate with respect. That is not correct. But we have aging rock stars weighing in on this now too. Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister fame agrees with Kiss Rocker's statement about children and gender identity. Well said, he says, according to reporting by Alex Nitzberg over at The Blaze. Paul Stanley attached a screenshot to his tweet. My thoughts on what I'm seeing. Quote, there's a big difference between teaching acceptance and normalizing and even encouraging participation in a lifestyle that confuses young children into questioning their sexual identification as though some sort of game and then parents in some cases allow it. There are individuals who as adults may decide reassignment is their needed choice, but turning this into a game or parents normalizing it as some sort of natural alternative or believing that because a little boy likes to play dress up in his sister's clothes or a girl in her brother's, we should lead them steps further down a path that's far from the innocence of what they are doing. With many children who have no real sense of sexuality or sexual experiences caught up in the fun of using pronouns and saying what they identify as, some adults mistakenly confuse teaching acceptance with normalizing and encouraging a situation that has been a struggle for those truly affected and have turned it into a sad and dangerous fad. D. Snyder says, You know what? There was a time where I felt pretty, too. Glad my parents didn't jump to any rash conclusions. Well said, Paul Stanley Live. And actually... Going back to what Matt Walsh's response was to Bill Maher, there's not a big difference. There's not a big enough difference between teaching acceptance on the one hand and normalizing on the other hand. What do you think you're doing when you're teaching acceptance of some of these things? You are normalizing them. And as Matt Walsh asked the question with regards to Bill Maher, have you looked in the mirror lately? (laughs) So also... Dee Snyder and Paul Stanley, Kiss and Twisted Sister, they made fashionable in their day for audiences of millions of fans. And more besides, they made it fashionable to bend gender norms. And I understand there's a certain point at which you say, okay, the artist is going to dress up oddly, 
But there's more to it than that. And if they want to wash their hands of it and say, oh, I, I didn't do this. It's not my fault. No. No, it's like Aaron saying, I threw the gold into a fire and out came this calf. Come on. It's not going to fly with God because God knows better. And something that would actually be helpful would be you saying, hey, I'm sorry. I've contributed to this. I repent. Please forgive me. Those I've sinned against, God especially, but then others I've sinned against, please forgive me. I knew not what I was doing, but I helped to bring this moment about. That would be actually helpful here. But of course, just like friends and family of mine who are teachers in the public school are very resistant to broad-based criticism of public education in many cases. Oh, our school is different. Oh, homeschooling is not any better. That would take a great deal of humility to say, hey, I contributed to this or what I've been a part of has contributed to this. And maybe we just didn't quite fully realize what it was that we were doing. And now we see the fruit. A good tree does not bear bad fruit, Jesus says. By their fruits, you will know them. That can be a That can be true on an individual basis. It definitely should be considered with regards to institutions that people contrive and lead and participate in. It should be considered. Is the fruit good fruit or is it bad fruit? Moving on back to the Billings Gazette, Brett French wrote a piece. Study in Yellowstone finds gardening cougars help feed their prey. And this is an odd one, but I have a point, which will become clearer as we go. Brett French writes, one blue whale would fertilize a lot of gardens. That's the amount of carrion researchers estimate 12 mountain lions could produce from killing elk, deer, and other ungulates in one year, roughly 220,000 pounds of decomposing meat, bones, and hide stippled across the landscape. With cougars loyal to certain places that fit their sneak attack style of hunting, these rotting carcasses would add nutrients to the soil that nurture plant growth. Because ungulates seek out plants high in nutrients, they may be attracted to these same lion attack sites. The cycle of death, growth, and more death is scientifically described as nutrient cycling in a positive feedback loop. This theory was the basis for a recent study conducted in Yellowstone National Park by scientists from the Big Cat Conservation Group, Panthera, which creatively paints the pumas as organic predator gardeners. Quote, I think the term gardening is incredibly fun and gives a clear picture of how the carcasses left create hot spots of fertile soil in prime hunting locations that in turn attract prey, said Paige Munson, a field biologist and state policy associate with the Mountain Lion Foundation. How is this relevant, you might be wondering. I'll tell you. Just like rationalization can be engaged in to say, ah, these mountain lions, they're actually gardeners. We can turn human predators into the same. We can say, ah, see, they're actually filling a much needed role in our civilizational ecosystem. As long as we can point to positive things, any positive things that come out of their endeavors, then we'll thereby excuse ourselves for affirming, tolerating, normalizing what it is that they do instead of penalizing it. 
stigmatizing it as we should, as we're called to. It's also curious to me that this idea of fertilizing a lot of gardens is opposite how humans eating meat is portrayed. So humans eat meat and how awful are we? And then to my way of thinking, I look at predators in the animal kingdom and I say, well, they're eating meat. How about you try and tell them to stop it and knock it off? And then we get research like this and studies like this and articles like this. Another French I will draw your attention to on this question of transgenderism, cultural Marxism, making excuses, compromising. Peter Heck writes for Not the Bee. May 1st, lots came out on May 1st. May Day was a busy day for publishing. Stop slandering Christ's church to gain the world. A plea for David French's repentance. Here we have a picture of David French and a burning cross and a tweet screenshot from April 27th. David French tweets, I once put this question to a pastor friend of mine. Why do people talk so much more about trans issues than, say, porn? The answer was interesting. Well, no one in the church is arguing that porn is okay. Okay, but they're acting like it's just fine. That was David French's contribution to the public discourse, April 27th. You can read Peter Heck's piece on this for yourself if you want. I'll include a link in the description for this podcast episode. But suffice to say, once again, if we are looking for excuses, we will be able to find them. We will always be able to find them for drawing moral equivalents. So in other words, that's what David French is doing. He's saying that Christians are no better than the trans activists and Christians should just shut up unless they're willing to say what David French is saying, what he wants them to say. They should just shut up because they're clearly hypocrites. Now, I would point out that even in God's word, even in God's law, we don't have all sexual immorality described in the same terms, with the same severity, we don't have, even in the case of the Leviticus passage I just read for you at the top of this episode, all sexual immorality or indiscretion handled the same. So going back to Leviticus 19, verse 20 to 22, if a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man, and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. So this is God, by the way. Not me. I didn't write this. This is God saying, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. And you say, well, but he should clearly be put to death. And no, not even. It doesn't mean that this is okay. It doesn't mean that this is something to normalize, but it is to say God recognizes a distinction and commands us to also recognize a distinction. He does not give us carte blanche to say all sin is sin and therefore all of it needs to be talked about to the same extent, talked about with the same animation or all alike kept silent on. That's not what God does. That's not what he tells us to do. David French is wrong. Not surprising, but it does need to be said for your sake. I don't think he would listen if I were to tell him, you're wrong on this and here's why. 
But for your sake, I say he is wrong. And we shouldn't think like he is thinking. We shouldn't go along with him. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom. So that is to say, as I understand it, if I'm reading this correctly, and somebody please correct me if I'm not reading it correctly, this is a woman who is perhaps engaged to be married. It says assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom. Adultery, as I've pointed out before, is when a married woman or a woman who's engaged to be married. This is the biblical definition. This is the working biblical definition. You can have your own definition if you want, but it's not the biblical definition just because it's your definition. If a woman is married or engaged to be married and she has sexual relations with another man, if it's rape and he gets put to death, if it is consensual, they both get put to death. And yet here, it would appear as though she's engaged to be married, but has not yet been ransomed, which is to say, if she's going to be given her freedom, but she hasn't yet, you draw a distinction there. For her sake, she's not free. And you say, oh, but that's awful. That's horrible. And I say, we're in no place to talk in this day. In this day and age, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, particularly when it's God saying, a distinction shall be made. Take care, lest you be sitting in judgment of God himself. But even in the case of the man, he shall bring his compensation to Yahweh, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering. So that is to say he is guilty and he has sinned and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. This is instructive and it should be instructive. And David French is wrong. He's actually hoisting himself by his own petard here, as Shakespeare would say. Coming back to the Daily Wire, Daily Wire News, April 30th, actor Richard Dreyfus warns that Americans not knowing the Constitution will have dire consequences. Might I suggest that Americans also not knowing their Bibles, American Christians not knowing their Bibles, is having dire consequences. Not knowing the Constitution is already having dire consequences, not knowing our Bibles is already having dire consequences, and the costs go up the longer we continue to be unfamiliar and unversed, no pun intended. Here's a quote from Dreyfus. We got so far away from that in such a short amount of time, Dreyfus said of the core values that America's founders had, quote, by not knowing the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, by not knowing the birth tale of America, we cheat ourselves tremendously and we change the values that are so important and so unique to us. Opposing views. What other country cherishes opposing views like we do? End quote. Dreyfus said that both sides of the political spectrum were equally nuts and that hyperpartisanship makes everyone, quote, bitter and ignorant, end quote. Quote, for us to deny that or walk away from that or feel in some way compelled for either side, conservative or liberal, to have to put down the other side, it's not enough to disagree with people you were called upon to put them down personally. There are people who wouldn't consider it a good day if they hadn't put down some liberals as idiots, end quote. Quote, that's nonsense. It's horse shit, he continued. Quote, we should grow up and stop it. Now, I'll disagree with Dreyfus here that both conservatives and liberals are equally nuts because you can actually find conservatives 
who are correct. Now, it's not to say all people who consider themselves conservatives are correct. And being very emotional, we have to take care. Listen to Carl Truman in Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Take care that we're not actually just feeding right back into this emotivist. We know things through experience and we know truth by how we feel. And we're not just feeding right back into that in our response to these things. Our evidences, our arguments, our proofs for right and wrong, true and false, good and evil, can't afford to be primarily emotional, primarily sentimental. The people who are making their arguments or listening to arguments need to be going to God's word. And yes, need to be students of history. Absolutely. But here's another famous actor, Shawshank Redemption actor, Tim Robbins, blasts Democrats, mainstream media for thuggish censorship. Paul Saka over at The Blaze, April 29th, quotes Robbins, what an embarrassing, shameful time for the Democrats and the free press. Robbins wrote on Twitter, you are losing any shred of credibility you had, you blanking fools. Robbins also demanded that Julian Assange be released from prison. Here's a tweet highlighted from Tim Robbins. Recently, independent journalists Matt Taibbi, Schellenberger, Barry Weiss have been exposing a massive censorship operation by the U.S. government to control content on social media and eliminate any dissenting voices. Have you read their reporting? And that's a great question. And thank you, Tim Robbins, for drawing attention to it. But understand that this is a battle of good and evil. That's where Richard Dreyfus he might pine for the good old days as he sees it, as Bill Maher would see it, as lead singers and key members of famous rock bands from decades ago might see it. They might pine for the days, the good old days. All the while, do they recognize that they have opened Pandora's box here by having rejected the authority of God's word, having rejected Christ, having insisted on affirmation, tolerance, acceptance of, normalization of deviance, morally, spiritually, legally, culturally, because it was profitable to them, because they had something to gain from that. Do they recognize how they themselves have contributed to this moment? And if they're really wanting to do something helpful, are they willing to, prepared to personally turn away from the whole kit and caboodle? What's needed is not more emoting, more virtue signaling, just in the other direction. What's needed is to know truth, to know what is good according to God, and to do it. In all toil, there is a profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. One last story, and then I got to run. Biden admin hired activists behind one of the cruelest cancellations in history. Luke Rosiak published this piece May 1st over at the Daily Wire. A woman who hunted down and destroyed the life of a private figure who once wore blackface to a Halloween party in an episode widely seen as the peak of cancel culture zealotry later resurfaced briefly in the Biden administration. Lexi Gruber-Perez, who attended a 2018 party thrown by then-Washington Post cartoonist Tom Tolles, despite not being invited, complained two years later that she had seen a woman wearing blackface there, although the woman, later identified as Sue Schaefer, wore blackface in an effort to criticize racism. The complaint from Gruber Perez prompted a front-page article and 
the cancellation of Schaefer and possibly Tolls. The article shocked people across the political spectrum with its vindictive and malignant tone and was described as the zenith of cancel culture. Gruber Perez began working as a senior advisor at the Department of Health and Human Services in September 2021. The Daily Wire has learned, according to her LinkedIn profile, which pictures her with Biden. She left the job after six months and now lives in England. Quote, now is the time to address the stark racial disparities, acknowledge the history of criminalizing neglect, and move toward the new systems of care that prevent the need for family separation, she said on Facebook after taking the job, according to the imprint, a publication which chronicles the youth human services industry. Now, why do I bring this one up? Why do I end on this note? I end on this note because it goes right back to showing partiality to the poor. As we're told, we are told that this or that intersectional group, this or that minority has been oppressed and they are the have-nots. And the reason they're the have-nots is because these other people have and took. And so these are the oppressors. These are the oppressed. And if you say, ah, but wait, that actually doesn't check out. Ah, but wait, we don't have all the facts. Ah, but wait, we need due process here. Ah, but wait, consider the sources of this info and what their agenda is and what their larger aims are. We're told, quiet, you trust the experts. You're not perfect either. You're holier than thou. You're not innocent. And the trouble is, that a great many of us give up on being holy for God is holy. And that's how we've gotten into this mess in the first place. We have given up on being holy for God is holy, even though he commanded it. And he even gave us particular examples of how we might do that. And it might be confusing and surprising, unexpected. Some of what God tells us to draw distinctions about, but the alternative is that you allow for people who are godless and lawless and depraved, operating from selfish ambition and vain conceit, ultimately to decide what the distinctions are going to be and when and where and how we will destroy the next person and the next person and the next person. All in the name of pursuing justice, they will abolish justice. On the one hand, they'll say we're being partial to the poor because That's social justice, even though God said expressly to not do that. On the other hand, if you challenge them and you say, well, wait a second, wait a second, they'll say, trust the experts. We're the experts. And they will require you, demand that you defer to the great, even though God tells us to not do that either. And what we have in God's word, in passages like the one I read for you at the top of this episode, what we have is not just permission, we have a command from God to not go along with that, to not tolerate that, to not affirm that. Now, I would not recommend that we be as angry and animated as the father in that one clip I played for you that was posted to Facebook that I commented on, and this is why we homeschool. Let's try to not be quick to speak and quick to get angry and slow to listen. Let's be, as James says, just the opposite quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. But if you do feel some anger about these things, about the mass destruction and the mass distraction that the left is perpetrating and has been for some time, if that does make you angry at a certain point, remember that James said, be slow to anger, not 
If you get angry at all, therefore we know, you're just as wrong as the person you're angry with. If you're angry with your brother without cause, that's a problem. That's a major problem. Because that could speak to, you're just jealous. You're just envious. He has something you want. You want it oh so bad. Don't move. Hand it over. I want it in my hands. But larger than the particular stories, even this one about the Biden administration and who they're bringing in and who's coming and going, much larger than that is remembering we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. We do wrestle against the governing authorities in the heavenly places. We do have enemies. Otherwise, you don't put on the whole armor of God. Not when you don't have enemies, not when you're not planning to fight. Are we putting on the whole armor of God so that we can stand firm in the day of adversity? Along these lines, I'm reading To Kill a Mockingbird right now on my wife's suggestion. She just read it. She said, you really need to read this book. I had never, haven't to this point before yesterday when I started, ever read it. But when I finished it, I intend fully to apply Lee Harper's wonderful so far, highly enjoyable literature to these questions. So look forward to that. Maybe in the next day or two, I have a review of To Kill a Mockingbird, some thoughts to share with you. But for now, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.